week two uh, of a series that we're calling Day of the Lord. And this series is really uh, to trace the, the biblical theme of the Day of the Lord throughout the biblical story. And it began last week with what I consider a really foundational week uh, in terms of understanding where we're headed and everything that's going on. Uh, and so I just want to briefly recap kind of where we've been uh, so that we can ha all have that foundation as we jump into the second week here. Uh, we began in the beginning, which is always a good thing to do if you're going to trace something from through the biblical story. You need to begin in the beginning, uh, which is what we did. And we learned that Adam and Eve were tempted uh, by the serpent, or what we said is a non-human character. Uh, and they were tempted to believe that if they ate from the fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then that would give them the ability to redefine good and evil on their own terms, which is precisely what they do, and the results are disastrous. Uh, it leads to things like seeing their neighbor as a threat, uh, moving their own relationship between one another and between God from one of utter trust and total trust to one of suspicion. Uh, we, their, their ancestors and their family after them begin using violence and death as a means of gaining power and control over others, conflict, etc., etc. It gets really ugly really fast as you read the first uh, chapters of the Bible. Now, it eventually leads to Genesis chapter 11, which is uh, Babylon and the building of the Tower of Babel. Uh, and this is where humanity uses a brand new technology, that is the technology of brick and tar, uh, to try and elevate themselves to godlike proportions. And so throughout the rest of the biblical story, Babylon becomes a shorthand way of talking about collective human evil. And this was a really important point for us because in the modern uh, church in the West, we tend to focus almost exclusively on individual sin and there, therefore individual redemption and completely ignore collective human evil and the need for a collective redemption or rescue from God. And so it turns out, though, that what we learned about is all these kinds of evils are, in fact, familiar to us in our world, that we live and we see evidence of these kinds of evils all over the place, and even in ourselves. And so the day of the Lord is this biblical phrase that is used to describe how God confronts human evil, frees his people from oppression, and establishes his rule. What our role, and we talked about this last week, our role then is, as the people of God, is to begin to see and discern where is systemic evil or collective evil and, and resist it. Our role is to realize that, that sin robs us of our humanity, the humanity that is to be a God-reflecting beauty to the world. So, uh, if you missed this important foundation for the series, uh, if you missed the message, I encourage you to go back and listen to the entire thing. It's available via podcast or our website. Uh, but I want to I hone in on one passage of Scripture. Uh, it's going to seem really out of place, but I promise uh, we're going to work our way there. Uh, so it's a little bit of non-linear storytelling today, like J.J. Uh, Abrams always does, where you like, like, like get plopped into the middle of the story and then you circle back. That's what we're going to do with this morning's passage of Scripture. So uh, let me read it uh, to us this morning. Our passage comes from Exodus chapter 14, verses 29 and 30. It says this, But the Israelites went through the sea on the dry ground, uh, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day... The Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Heavenly Father, in these moments together, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, uh, not just for understanding, but for application of your word. 
Uh, we pray, God, that through the, the proclamation of your word that you would form our hearts more into your likeness, that your spirit would be active in this place uh, to give us discerning hearts and to offer a word uh, from you that we might uh, receive it, God. We love you. We give you thanks and praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we have some work to do. When we left, we were in Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. Uh, and we want to get all the way to Egypt. And so let me do a, a Reader's Digest version of what happened so that we can catch up in the story. Uh, after Babel, God establishes a covenant with a, a single family, uh, the family of Abram. His name is later changed to Abraham. And, and God says that uh, through Abraham, all people will be blessed. And then Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has Joseph, and Joseph has 11 other sons that make the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph is the favorite son, so the others hate him, and his brothers fake his death and then sell him to slave traders. And you thought the Bible was boring. <laughs> now Joseph ends up in Egypt and finds favor with the king, and so he is brought into the highest levels of leadership in Egypt. Many years pass, but eventually Joseph's brothers face famine in their homeland, and the famine is so bad that to stay there meant certain death, and so they go as immigrants to Egypt, where to their surprise, Joseph receives them with kindness and offers them food. Now, given that they have a brother in leadership in Egypt, where all the food is and is available, who, who can help them, uh, then the whole family migrates to Egypt to flee the life-threatening famine. And while there, they fulfill their God-given blessing to be fruitful and multiply. They do this for 400 years in Egypt, and that's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. <laughs> now, when you get to the book of Exodus, things begin to change. Because as early as chapter 1, verse 8 in Exodus, we read this. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. That's a really important sentence. Uh, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now the new Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the title for the king, the new Pharaoh has no basis of relationship with this immigrant population. And so what he does is he writes them all off as being bad. That is to say that he gives an entire group of people a label. And I contend that this is really only possible uh, if as long as we insulate ourselves from relationship with anyone in the group. Are you with me? I want you to listen carefully today. I I'm saying a lot more than I'm saying, so I want you to listen carefully, okay? Now, as Israel grew in numbers, Pharaoh became convinced that the growing immigrant population was a threat to his power and the threat to the well-being of his nation, and so he took action. And what he does is two things primarily. Number one is he ordered the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys. Uh, that way he could do this and keep it close to the chest, as they say. <laughs> he orders the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys. 
Now, when the midwives refuse, he, gave, he just goes ahead and gives a general order that all Hebrew boys be drowned in the Nile River. You can read all about this in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 and following. The second thing he does uh, to, to stave off the threat of this immigrant people group is he enslaves the rest of the population and puts them to work making bricks. Now, this allowed, Pharaoh to, uh, this allowed Pharaoh and all of Egypt to become rich off of the backs of the enslaved immigrant people group while also preventing the growth of that group, therefore containing the possibility of an overthrow. And let's be clear, God sees this as total and utter evil. In other words, Egypt had become a bigger, badder Babylon. Okay? Uh, in other words, if you look at sort of the, the origins of the day of the Lord, lean to what, what the day of the Lord is addressing at Babylon, Babylon becomes a shorthand way of talking about collective human evil, and what you get after Babylon is Egypt, and Egypt is a bigger, badder version. It's all the same kinds of evil, but played out in, in to greater and greater degrees. Pharaoh had become so consumed with maintaining his own power that enslaving people and killing innocent children was considered good because it benefited himself and kept him in power. Now remember, the original sin with Adam and Eve is believing that we can redefine good and evil for our own purposes. And so what Pharaoh does is he goes, this is a good thing for the nation of Egypt to enslave these people and to control their population in very direct ways. And, and, and for them, he calls this good. And God sees this as utter evil. In fact, we, we might be able to say this is collective human evil run completely amok, <laughs> Right? Now remember, the day of the Lord is all about how God confronts this collective human evil. But, so the key question is, how does God confront this evil? And actually, as you're reading the, the, the text, all of Genesis, the beginning part of Exodus, the real question that should be stirring and burning in your heart and mind is, is God going to do anything about this? Right? You, you kind of get this, this crescendo of evil going on. Uh, to Babylon, and then God is, picks out one righteous family, Abraham, and says, I will bless all nations through you. And then you get this crescendo of evil up to Egypt, and you're just meant to ask the question, is God going to do anything, right? If you're, if you're reading the text and you're paying attention, that should be a question that is on your heart and mind. Now let me give you the answer. Yes, God does confront evil. He does confront this evil. He does something about it. And in short, God rescues evil from slavery in Egypt by turning the evil of Pharaoh onto himself. God does this by turning the evil of Pharaoh onto himself. And he does this in a couple of ways. First, through the plagues. Uh, now, Moses and Moses' story is uh, what we've skipped over. Uh, but there's a man named Moses who eventually is called by God to approach and confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so Moses does this. And Moses and, and Pharaoh have a showdown where Moses demands that Pharaoh let his people go. Each time Pharaoh refuses, a plague comes. And the plagues demonstrate that Yahweh 
is the Lord over all of creation. I want you to hear that. The plagues demonstrate that God is Lord over all of creation. And Pharaoh is given plenty of chances to repent of his evil, but he refuses to do so. And I want you to notice some important things as it relates to the plague. And we're gonna the plagues, and we're gonna just like run through these really fast. But this is this is important. The first plague is the the, the Nile River is turned into blood, and it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, and he refuses to let his people go. The second plague, the frogs, says this, but Pharaoh saw that there was, when, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to Moses, just as the Lord had said. In the third plague, the gnats come, and, the, and it says this in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. In the fourth plague, the flies, this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. And after the fifth plague, the livestock, Pharaoh, it says this, Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Now I want you to notice that through the first five plagues, up to this point, Pharaoh hardens his own heart and refuses to release the Hebrew people. Sometimes he agrees to release them, but as soon as the calamity of the plague releases or, or gets easy, then he changes his mind and, and he decides he won't let the people go after all. Now, with the start of the sixth plague, you have something unique. The sixth plague is the boils. But, and then it says this in Exodus chapter 9. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did you catch it? The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. In the seventh plague, the hail, so Pharaoh's heart was hard. In the eighth one, the locust, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let the people go. The point seems to be that after several chances, it is clear that Pharaoh isn't going to change his mind, and his evil has reached a point of no return. And so God decides at that point, seeing, seeing the heart of Pharaoh, seeing that he's not going to change his mind, that he is not going to relent, that his heart is unyielding, what God decides to do is to be, begin to use Pharaoh's evil and churn that evil toward his own redemptive purposes. Are you with me? Now this all leads to the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Now the tenth plague... Let's get, first, let's get some details of the story with the 10th plague. God says that the angel of death is going to come throughout all of Egypt and kill all of the firstborn children, unless there is the blood of a lamb that is spread on the doorway. And so God instructs the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb, to wipe the blood on the doorways so that they would be passed over and rescued from certain death. Let's make some observations about this. First of all, we need to recognize and realize that this is the exact evil that Pharaoh was carrying out against the Israelites. I don't know if you've ever made that connection. But the Passover is the exact evil that God was carrying out against the Israelites, or that Pharaoh was carrying out against the Israelites. It's evil so perverse that they would call it good to kill innocent children. And as Pharaoh was doing this, even his own counsel, even his own people that he had surrounded around himself for wisdom had said, this 
man has gone mad and he has lost his mind. Pharaoh's own counsel was saying this. But God, remember, God intends to churn that evil against Pharaoh for his own redemptive purposes. And so as you read the account of the tenth plague, it's clear that the biblical authors are giving God plenty of credit for carrying out this action of death. But let's ask a really important question. Doesn't this make God guilty of the same evil that he is trying to confront? If you read the text closely, there is a bit of bouncing back and forth of God being the acting agent and the destroyer being the acting agent. For example, Exodus chapter 12, verse 23 says this, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frames and he will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter the house and strike you down. Now, you may land differently on this, but the way that I see it is this. By killing the Hebrew boys, Pharaoh was doing the work of the destroyer. That is, he was doing the work and the will of the serpent in the garden, the non-human character, the one who would lead us to do inhumane things. So by killing the Hebrew boys, Pharaoh was precisely in line of the will of the destroyer. And now at the 10th plague, what God does is God rescues the people of Israel from the destroyer through the blood of the lamb while withdrawing his protection from Egypt so that Egypt becomes subject to the same evil that they perpetrated. Does that make sense? Egypt becomes subject to the same kind of evil that they had perpetrated, and this event is called the Passover. And so remember, at the beginning of this, I said, what God does is he turns Pharaoh's evil against himself and moves toward his own redemptive purposes, but never carrying out evil or violence for himself. This is the first example. Let me give you the second. The second example is after the 10th plague, Pharaoh finally relents. He lets the Hebrew people go. The Hebrew people, most estimates land at around 2 million people total, uh, make their way out of Egypt, but Pharaoh changes his mind. His armies pursue the Israelite nation. And so now Moses and all of the Hebrew people find themselves between a rock and a hard place, or as you might say, between the Red Sea and, the, and Pharaoh's army. <laughs> And perhaps you've heard the rest of the story. Moses puts his staff in the water. The waters part. They cross on dry land while Pharaoh and all of his armies are drowned into the sea. Yay, God, right? <laughs> but there's something interesting here that we need to pay attention to. In the ancient mind, the sea was seen as the place or the source of evil and chaos. And so at Pharaoh's death, what God is doing again is demonstrating himself to be Lord over all of creation, even the sea, considered to be the source of evil and chaos. God demonstrates himself to be Lord over the sea while Pharaoh dies at the hands of his own evil. That's the image. Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the waters. I want you to catch on to this. In the ancient mindset, the water is the source of evil and danger and chaos. And so as Pharaoh is carrying out all of this evil and perpetrating all of this chaos, he dies at his own hands. That's the image of Pharaoh and his army drowning in the waters. Now, in case you just think I've gone completely off my rocker, 
perhaps the best example of seeing water as the source of chaos and evil is found in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now, it's actually all over the book of Revelation, but what people notice is in 21, verse 1, where it says that in God's new creation, there's no longer any sea. And all the people in California that love to surf are like, bummer, dude, right? (laughs) Right? I mean, it's just like, so, so what is this text saying to us? Is this saying that in God's new world, God's new creation, that we don't need water to survive? Is that what it's saying? I don't think so. No, it's, sim- it's a symbolic and poetic way of saying that the source of evil and chaos will be no more. Right? So we shouldn't get to Revelation 21.1 and say, oh, heaven's not going to have an ocean. But rather we should say that if we understand the ancient mindset with water as a source of chaos and evil, and then this makes perfect sense that in God's new creation, there's no longer any sea. And so the Exodus and the Passover, where God churns evil toward his own redemptive purposes without perpetrating any evil or violence himself, are actually really early and ancient precursors to Jesus' words. If you live by the sword then you will die by the sword. That if you perpetrate evil, there's a good chance you'll become subject to that same evil. But that's how evil works. This event is referred to as the Exodus. And the Passover and the Exodus become central images of rescue throughout the rest of Scripture. In fact, uh, each year, the people of Israel celebrate the Passover as that day. (laughs) Right? And now we're at the end of the second message. We're finally rolling around to the day of the Lord. That this event is referred to as that day when they were rescued. I read it at the beginning. I'll read it again. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. You see, the day, or that day, was when they were rescued from an oppressive human system. And throughout the rest of the story, God is referred to as the God who has brought you out of Egypt. That this event, this Passover and Exodus event, becomes a central event of looking back. And this now becomes a shorthand way of saying, this is the moment when God rescued us from collective human evil that we were subject to evil and oppression, and God showed up and rescued us. Are you with me? That, that just in the same way as Babylon becomes a shorthand way of talking about collective human evil, the day or that day becomes a shorthand way of saying how God confronts that evil. And Babylon is a central image, and the Passover and Exodus are a central image as well. And if you understand this, then you will begin to see all this whole thread throughout the entire biblical story being picked up on again and again and again. That day was when the people of God were rescued from an oppressive human system. That he is a liberating God who took down an empire and established a covenant with his people. What that means then is that day, the day of Passover, is the first 
of what will be the days of the Lord. Yes, plural. That when we hear the day of the Lord, we tend to think all the way out there, right? And we tend to only think that one day. But the day of the Lord, beginning as early as Exodus, is, is this motif or this symbol for when God confronts collective human evil and rescues an oppressed people. And so there's multiple days of the Lord that lean to the ultimate day of the Lord. But remember when we first started the series last week, I said oftentimes when we talk about the day of the Lord, we get, we get images of apocalypse and divine calamity, and it's all, kinds of, it's all kinds of violence that's surrounding, and it's just like all this kind of end times rapture kind of stuff. What I want to do is flip that all around and begin to recognize the day of the Lord is a day of rescue. It is a day of good news. In fact, after the, after the Passover, the Israelites uh, go and they, uh, they wander in the desert. Eventually, they find their way into the promised land. And any time that they have threats come against them in the promised land, you know what they pray for? A day of the Lord. I want the day to come to save us from these collective human evils that are threatening us. And so they, the day of the Lord becomes this way of talking about this day of tremendous rescue. Now, next week... We're going to talk about the surprising turn that the story takes. But for now, I want you to just recognize the day of the Lord as a day of rescue from collective human evil. Two thoughts as we end this morning's message. One about ourselves and one about God. The first is, can you see yourself in this story? Pharaoh thought poorly of and labeled an entire people group because he felt threatened by them and had no basis of relationship. And Pharaoh was in a position of power and authority and was threatened and felt that his power and authority was threatened. But I can say to you that many of us are probably threatened in different ways, by different people groups. And, and we may be talking about ethnicity, we may be talking about lifestyle, we may be talking about economic status, we may be talking about any number of, of, of kind of ways of organizing ourselves, but the reality is that if I'm honest, I see myself in this story that I, at different points in my life, have been, have done the same thing. That maybe my comfort is threatened, maybe my certainty is threatened by a certain group that's doing this or that or, or whatever, and, and so I, I write all people off that are in that group or that thing or whatever, I put them in a category, I label them, and then I refuse relationship with them. And I call them, them. <laughs> I've done it, have you? But I think what's important to realize is that as we read the story, we aren't supposed to be saying, yeah, Pharaoh, you're doing the right thing. That, that a boy, right? But what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to see 
that how God feels about Pharaoh's actions and how God feels is this is utter evil. It's utter evil to dehumanize someone in such a way that we write off the possibility of relationship with them based on any number of categories. So the first thing is I, I just want us to begin to ask the really difficult question of have I ever done this? Am I doing this? And how do I move toward a healthier way of being human? I'll remind you of a story that I shared last week, but I think it's appropriate here too. Is I was at an Austin Channing Brown book tour. She had written a book called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And it's a really great book to read. If for no other reason, it gives you an opportunity uh, to see the world through the eyes of someone with colored skin. So those of you who are white, you should read this book. Because it just gives you a perspective that I'd be willing to bet you've not ever had before. And then at the end of the book tour, and the, the, the conversation was amazing, and there were lots of aha moments and, and oh man moments. And, but at the end, they did a Q&A, and this woman, right at the end of the aisle, an older woman of color, raised her hand and said, Austin, would you speak to the reality that white supremacy hurts not just black people, but white people as well? That she had the, the insight to be able to see that when this system is in place, that it robs the humanity not only of the oppressed, but of the oppressor. I want us to get to a place where we can begin to just ask those kind of difficult questions and say, do I see myself in this story? The second thing I want to point out is good news about the character of God. And that is this, that I, I want us to see and I want us to notice that God is capable of confronting evil without perpetrating it. Right? And, and I don't know how many of you have ever like, read the Scriptures and just really struggled with uh, the, the apparent discrepancy between uh, maybe God's actions in the Old Testament and then the message of love in, in, in the New Testament of Jesus. And if you've ever just kind of wrestled with some of those realities, and, and can I just say uh, up front and out loud that I don't have all the intricacies worked out, I don't have all the answers, but this is certainly a journey that I'm on of discovering that God is like Jesus. And so I need to read the Old Testament with, with, through the lens of Jesus, escorted into the Old Testament story by Jesus. And, and when we do that, I think we begin to see some things. And what I see in this story, this story of violence and evil, is that God is able to confront collective human evil without participating in the evil himself. That is to say that he doesn't confront oppression by being oppressive. That he doesn't confront violence with more violence. But God, as Lord over all of creation and holder of infinite wisdom, is able to confront the worst of all human evils without participating in the evil itself. And the best the best phrase that I've been able to come up with on how he does this is that God churns evil upon itself so that the evil collapses itself. 
that God doesn't meet evil with the same means, but rather has an ability to turn evil upon itself. The other thing I notice about this that is related is that when we tend to have a really individualistic and let's be honest, rather small view of the world, then when God doesn't seem to be doing anything about my personal situation, we assume that God must not be at work at all. But what I want us to see is, is a larger picture of what the biblical story is showing us, and that is that what the biblical story shows us is that God is at work among a people. And in this story, he was seeking to free the oppressed. Can you imagine that there might be an Israelite who um, maybe had some physical issues that they were dealing with, that they needed to be healed from, and they'd been told and raised God was a healer and all of these kinds of things, and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed, and, and God didn't heal them? And how tempted they might be to say, God isn't at work, when what God was doing was freeing them from a larger oppression? You with me? And I'm not trying to say, oh, God's not going to heal you, but I'm just trying to say that, that God is at work in ways that maybe sometimes we don't recognize when we're narrowly view, when we're so narrowly focused on what is happening in my life right here and right now. And I just want us to maybe take a step back and begin to see the, the arc of history and what God is doing in the big picture of what's happening. Particularly difficult, maybe, recognizing that God is often, I'm tempted to say always, but I was taught to never say never or always. <laughs> so I'll stick with often, but God is often on the side of the oppressed, which can be a hard pill to swallow if you're on the side of the oppressors. What I'm trying to share with you today is that the day of the Lord is good news. It's a day of rescue. But I'm also trying to say that Sometimes the, the biblical message isn't just so neat and tidy and easy, but can often force us to look in a mirror and ask really difficult questions. Okay? And I just want to be honest about that. And um, if we can't be honest, then we can't be anything, right? <laughs> so I invite you to be honest. But to today, recognize the good news of the day of the Lord and to recognize that God is capable of confronting evil without perpetrating it himself. And that, to me, church, is really good news. Really good news. Amen? Let's say a word of prayer, and let's gather around the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, thanks for your goodness to us, for all the ways that you have spoken to us and challenged us through this message. God, I have done my best to communicate with clarity, with passion. I've spoken the convictions of my heart, uh, but I am an imperfect person. 
So, Lord, if I've spoken anything in error, I pray that your spirit would correct us and correct me. And that, God, we would discover the truth and the beauty that is found not only in the scriptures, but in the living word of God. And so, Lord, help us in these moments as we wrestle with the depth, with the immediate application of how your word speaks right into our world and into our lives. Lord, as we wrestle with that, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment, for we need that in abundance. God, be with us. As we gather around your table, may we experience your presence. May we take in your very life as we take in these elements of communion. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.